How can we empower Latinidad in academia? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Edgar Gómez Cruz in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Fagundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Dr. and Professor Edgar Gómez Cruz. Edgar is Associate Professor in the School of Information at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is also Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. His research interests center on issues and matters of digital culture, information, innovative methods, visual culture, new media, ethnography, science and technology studies, critical theory, diversity, inclusion, social justice and Latin America. Before his current posts at the University of Texas, Austin, he was at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, Melbourne, Australia, at the University of Leeds in the UK, and at the Open University of Catalonia in Spain, and University of Colima, Mexico, and at the Tech in Guadalajara, also in Mexico. His um, PhD is from the Universidad uh, Oberta de Catalunya, the Open University of Catalonia, in Information and Knowledge Society. Before that, he got a master's degree in sociological theory from Universidad Complutense de Madrid in Spain and degrees in um, another master's in social sciences from the Monterrey Institute of Technology in Mexico and in social communication, a bachelor's degree from Universidad de Colima also in Mexico. He is the author of four books, two edited volumes and dozens of journal articles and book chapters. We are delighted to have Edgar with us today. Welcome to El Café Latinx, my friend. Thank you, Pablo. It's it's such an honor to be here. I, I'm a huge uh, fan of the of the show, and I was we were talking about it. I I usually listen to the show when I'm running or having a walk or commuting. So thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So so tell us how did it all begin? That is, how was the journey that led you to become an academic? I think if I wanted our audience to be excited, I will start with a history of success, a story of success. But the truth is the true beginning of all this, it's a, it's a story of failure. And what happened is that 
Um, I, I was never a very dedicated student. I, I enjoy school, but it was not my thing. Uh, when I was doing my undergraduate, I was a musician. I was playing in a, in a rock band. I was ready to go and live that life as a, as a musician. Uh, except that the last year of my undergrad, I took cinema classes and I fall in love with cinema. I was so excited. I did a short film. I you know, produced, directed, wrote, and I was so excited. I was going to be the next uh, Woody Allen. And, and then what happened is that I say, okay, should I study cinema as a second career or should I just go and do something else, but also related to cinema? And I just found this program in the Monterrey Institute of Technology in Monterrey, Mexico. And it had two different paths. One was more research oriented, new technologies, communi international communication, and, was, and the other one was cinema. So I say, this is perfect. I'm just going to do my master's and it's going to be a master's in communication with a specialty in cinema. And this is, this is true story. When I arrived there and I say, I'm coming for the cinema path, they, they, the director of the program, Jose Carlos Lozano, a good friend of mine, he said, you know what? We just closed that, that uh, uh, avenue. And you know, there's, there were several reasons uh, um, to that, but suddenly I was found, my, I found myself in Monterrey in the north of Mexico, enroll in a program that didn't have my path. And he said, but you know what? We have this, this other fantastic um, route, which is research. And you know, I'm actually looking for a, a new research assistant. So if you're interested, we can talk about that. And that was the beginning of the whole thing. Um, so it's, it's a story of failure in a way. Like many of our stories, I think. Um, so thank you for sharing with us. So, so what happened after that? So you had Tech de Monterrey, you're doing research uh, for a master's degree. How did your journey continue? So what happened there uh, in Monterrey is that I started uh, getting involved with Jose Carlos uh, Lozano in more research. And we did a, lo a lot of like interesting projects. One of them, for example, was the first National Audience Studies Project in Mexico, funded by Televisa. They gave us $100,000 that right now may not be a, a huge sum, but at the time, we didn't know what to do with so much money. We did like uh, 24 uh, focus groups in Guadalajara, Monterrey, and Mexico, 60 interviews, and we did a, um, a, a national survey. So we didn't, we had too much data to actually uh, um, work with, with that. And the other thing that happened at, at that particular moment is that before I actually enrolled in the master's degree, I went to, I attended a conference as a student in my last year uh, as an undergrad in Monterrey. And what happened there is that I found this thing called internet for the first time. This is 90, let me say, let me see, this was 1994. So when I came back to my small university in, in, in Mexico, I asked, do, you, do, we not, do we have internet? And they say, oh yeah, we do. And there are four computers connected to the internet. Uh, and so I started like exploring what was this thing called internet. At the time, obviously the computers were like with, you know, green monitors and with green screens and, you had to use Telnet and you had to use like Unix in order for you to connect and Gopher and all this, this amazing work. And then I found the 
bulletin board system. And that opened my, my life to a different uh, kind of like excitement. So when I arrived to the master's degree, I say, okay, you know what? I, since I, I'm not gonna be able to be a film director, perhaps what I will do is to explore this topic that, that interests me, this internet thing. And, and Jose Carlos, who was also my, my supervisor, um, my, my thesis supervisor, he said, you know what? I have no idea what you're talking about, but I, I can help you with the methodology and the more kind of like formal um, elements of dissertation, but it, it is your topic. So you will, you will have to explore it yourself. And that was the beginning of my journey as a researcher. When I just realized, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a researcher thinking about an object that is still in the, in the in motion, that is still in the process of becoming as well. Um, again, at the time we didn't have the World Wide Web or it was not as, as present as uh, a few, a couple of years later was gonna be. And for me, what's growing my interest as researcher or learning to be a researcher at the same time that I was learning about an object. And, you know, I've been doing that for the last 20 plus years. Fascinating. And, and you did that later in your education at the uh, Open University of Catalonia, which was a very, very unique educational initiative, right? Uh, brainchild in part of Manuel Castells with a unique focus and a unique organization. Um, how was the experience of being a student there? How does it compare now that you've been on the other side of the fence? You think with the experience of a student in a more traditional program, in a more traditional institution? I mean, uh, there are a couple more stories of failure that perhaps I should just bring to the conversation because I think that they are uh, interesting. So what happened is that when I finished my master's degree and I strongly believe I may be wrong and hopefully the audience will say something if, if, if they know. I think it was the first digital or virtual ethnography at the time, the first virtual ethnography in Mexico. And, and I finished my, my master's thesis in 1996. And then what happened after that is that I came back to the, well, I, 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 I went to Europe backpacking and I did a number of things. But when I came back to, uh, to the uh, workforce as part of the University of Colima, where I did my undergrad, something that is sadly common in, in many parts of our countries, um, I started teaching and doing research there and I published my first book, right? And what happened is that I was 24, 20, yeah, it was 23 at the time. I had a master's degree, I had a book, I had two uh, published papers, and I felt that I was really good. You know, I, I felt, you know what, this is so good, I'm so good at this, so I'm gonna keep doing this for the rest of my life. And then apply, I applied for, I, I was working at the university full-time, kind of like similar to a tenure position at the time even without the PhD. So I applied to do my PhD and I applied only to two universities. I didn't want to come to the US. It's an old story that perhaps I should not touch at the moment, but um, I applied to two universities, the London School of Economics and Goldsmith College in, in both in London. And at the same time, I applied for this amazing scholarship that the Mexican government had at the time. If you were a, a full-time professor enrolled in a 
in, in a public university, you were able to go and do your PhD, pay by the government, and it was fantastic. Many countries have something similar. I got the scholarship, I got a check, thousands and thousands of pounds, but I didn't get accepted to the universities. And that was, a, that was my first lesson. I was A, I was not as good as I thought. B, I, I had no idea of academic cultures uh, anywhere but in Mexico. I, I didn't do very important steps that I should have done. For example, contact some professors and had a conversation with them about what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I made a number of mistakes and I was so disappointed. I had to bring back the check to the, to the office of the university. I was so disappointed and so, and so sad. Um, and then what I did is like, I need to start a PhD because I, I, I feel that I, I still need to learn. I'm not ready to teach. And then I applied to programs, both in Argentina and Spain, because those were the only programs that were open to, to, to get applications that late in the year. And this was probably September, October. So I, I got accepted at the uh, Universidad La Plata in, in, uh, in Argentina, to Flaxo in Argentina, and to the Complutense in Madrid. And I decided to go to Madrid. And I think it was a, a, a great decision for many reasons. And when I arrived to Madrid, something, again, something really exciting happened, which is that the person that I started working with, who was the underdog of the sociological world, he was an expert on science and technology studies. He actually wrote one of the first books about science and technology studies in, in Spain. We became really good friends, Ruben Blanco Merlo. He became a, a, a mentor. And then, so I, that was my opening A to the world and, and B to something beyond communication studies, right? STS. And finally, when I was ready to start my dissertation, uh, I, I was still employed by the University of Colima. And so the, the president of the university sent me an email well, since you don't have the scholarship, you need to come back right away. And the reason why I didn't have the scholarship is another tragedy, but I'm not going to get into that. Let's just say that the government decided Spain was not worth it anymore to, to provide scholarships. So I was in Madrid without funding and my boss telling me you have to come back to work. So I made the decision and I, 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 I knew this this person called Adolfo Estalella, an anthropologist who was doing his PhD, he wanted to interview me as a participant in one of his studies about blogs. We became really good friends. We, we really hit it up. And he said, why don't you just come to the Open University of Catalonia where he was doing his PhD? And I said, well, I've never heard about that university. And he said, no, 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 it's, it's great. We have great scholarships. And even though it's virtual, uh, we have a, a research center, which is becoming really, really important. So anyway, I, I talked to Elisander Devol, which was uh, his uh, supervisor and became my supervisor. And she was not very happy with my project at the, at the beginning. And then I convinced her and I came to do my dissertation in, in Barcelona at the Open uh, University of Catalonia. Again, it's very important to notice that while the university is virtual, they had the Internet Interdisciplinary Institute, which was the, the, the proper son or daughter of Manuel Castells. He became the director afterward. Um, so yeah, that was it. That was it. And, and that, was, that was 
I, I arrived, I did my PhD in what I probably would call the golden era of the iron tree. We did have a lot of resources. We did have access to conferences all over Europe. Uh, we, we had a lot of support and, and I think that made my, my PhD uh, an amazing um, journey. How was the combination of being present and you know attending classes virtually or was all in person? So if you 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 could do the PhD that I did uh, and you had to take classes and you you had to do a number of things virtually. But all of us, and we were I think 11 researchers, we were kind of like hired as PhD researchers already and allocated in, into research groups or research programs, et cetera. But this is not everyone who does this PhD. People do, who do the PhD can do the entire thing virtually, but we actually were there. We had offices, we had or seminars, we had uh, stuff. So it, that's what I make the distinction. Like while my program was virtual, my process of finishing the PhD was, was totally present. Okay. And then you finish your PhD and within a year you were at Leeds in the UK. Uh, I think more than a year. So what happened, and, and again, it's, so, it's so, so interesting looking back. So what happened is that at the time between Madrid and Barcelona, I've been in Spain for a number of years and I got kind of like a postdoc position in a way. I was doing research, we were doing great. Uh, we had access to research grants. The problem is that I changed my visa status from student to worker. And the Spanish regulation is that you only have this work visa attached to a, to a particular project, a particular uh, piece of work, right? So that meant effectively that every time that I apply for a grant, I also had to apply for a visa or actually the other way around. Every, every time I needed a visa or an extension of my visa, I needed to apply for a grant. And sometimes grants were three months, six months, one year. So in the space of the nine years that I live in Spain, I had, I don't know, maybe 13, 14 different visa applications, which I'm pretty sure, you know, it's very common also in Latin America, the bureaucracy in Spain, it's, it's something. So I got so fed up I, uh, because that didn't allow me to feel present, to feel that I belong there. And so that's why I applied for a job at the University of Leeds and, and I met another one of my good friends and colleagues, Helen Thornham. And we had this, pro this fantastic project for three years. We had a lot of money, so we were able to do a, a lot of things. And that was my introduction to the english-speaking world i was gonna say how was that because up until that point you had done your education and your research in a spanish-speaking language how was the change for you from in from spanish to english and from you know the culture of latin countries mm. In, mm. right uh hispanoamerica right yeah yeah the culture of anglo-saxon countries yeah, I mean, it was so interesting because particularly Barcelona, right? If you do live and work in Barcelona, which is a fantastic um, work culture, it's, you know, it's nothing like some people imagine Spain with um, um, 
with siestas, but Catalonia is not like that. Um, but at the same time, you have, you know, the beautiful city of Barcelona, you have party 24-7, you have uh, great museums, people from all over the world. So it's really difficult to focus on, on a dissertation in, in a place like Barcelona. And what happened with Leeds is that although I found a very warm and, and nice city, particularly with uh, northern um, uh, British people who are very warm, the truth is that it was completely the opposite. And you had, I don't know, a lot of rain, a lot of gray skies. You have a, a lot of kind of like depression in a way because like, you know, you get the sunset at four o'clock during winter. So it was, it was hard. It was hard. But at the same time, it was a very pleasant time because it allowed me to detach myself from being a student and become something else. So I, I made a, a number of transformations at the same time. I became a colleague rather than um, a student. I became uh, a worker rather than a PhD. I became um, kind of like, I don't know how to say it. Like I, I became myself in a way, right? But that had to do, that had to be in a different language. And I still don't feel comfortable. Like I, years have passed. I'm able to have a conversation. I made a, a number of grammatical mistakes. I still have like problems with code switching and stuff. I haven't found my voice yet in, in English. So that's why when I want to write like long pieces, I, I go to Spanish because that's my default for, for long and extended processes of thinking. So you work now in English-speaking countries um, as the official language. As we know, the U.S. has the second highest number of Spanish speakers in the world. So um, difficult to call it only an English-speaking language. But mm. but um, you have so since Leeds, because it was Leeds, Melbourne, Sydney, Austin, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so after all these many years, you still primarily, originally, for longer, complicated texts, uh, write in Spanish. I do, I do. And because for me, writing in English is still a stressful task. It's still uh, something that doesn't come naturally to me while reading and writing in Spanish. Mostly, mostly writing, more than reading. Writing in, in Spanish is relaxing. So, you know, I, I, I wrote during the pandemic, I wrote that book that I mentioned and I wrote it in, I don't know, probably three months just because it relaxed me. And, and that's something that I will never be able to do in English. I, I'm, I'm thinking about starting um, to write a, a, a long uh, book in, in English, but it, it just doesn't come naturally to me. Um, it's a still, and I, when I hear myself, or when I read what I've written in, in, in English, it's a still uh, pretty much alien to me. Um, but as you clearly say, like I, I teach in English, I communicate with my, most of my colleagues in English. Um, it's my, it's my work language now. And, you know, I, I try to improve as much as I can, but probably all the deficiencies, my accent, the pronunciation of that will, will always be there. And, I, and I, it's okay. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel shame for that. You shouldn't. And it's very interesting that two 
people whose first language is Spanish, you and I are having this conversation in English. Um, <laughs> one of the paradoxes of a globalized, but not so globalized academia. Do you also think in Spanish or do you think in English? When, I, when I'm, so do, do you remember the old cars or the old computers or the old TVs that you had to turn them on and then kind of like leave them for a while while they warm up? If I do that in, in for me, it's very difficult, the code switch. So I, in, at home, I speak Spanish. So when I come, let's say after a long weekend or like a, a, a holiday, back to work, it's it's kind of like, it's very difficult. But once I started, uh, once I start like speaking one language, I can just like fluently go, at least survive <laughs> a conversation. And I think, you know, I, I've, I've applied for four, let me see, well, several jobs, but like I've, I've got three jobs uh, speaking in English and answering questions in English. So that means that at least, I'm able to <laughs> to um, provide some meaning of my to my words, of course. And the accents in those countries also are very different, which um, perhaps was a challenge. You know, the English as spoken in England has a different sound to it. The English, not not only that, the the, the English speaking in Northern England. So if you if you watch Ted Lasso, you can think about Jamie Tark. He is the quintessential uh, Northern accent. So yeah, it's it's very difficult. Um, and then the, the Australian accent, it's it's also it's also quite fascinating <laughs> because they shorten everything. So that's why the the concept of selfie, for example, actually uh, was how Australians uh, called self portraits, and it's not a concept is just a way for them to shorten the words for example instead of breakfast they say brekkie instead of afternoon they say arvo and it's just that the way they they speak it's it's fascinating so how was the transition from leeds to melbourne and then to new south wales new south wales is when you had your first full teaching post yes yes so what happened is that um I was in Leeds and I was really happy and I was collaborating with uh, Helen, which is a fantastic uh, mentor and friend. Uh, but, but my position was getting, uh, was disappearing, right? And, and perhaps we will have time to talk about this whole story. But anyway, my position was disappearing. And before I actually finished the position, I went to Melbourne because um, uh, I, I was, engaged with the work of the Digital Ethnography Research Center there with uh, Sarah Pink, uh, uh, Helen Horst, uh, sorry, uh, Heather Horst. Um, so I went to visit them. I really liked what they were doing. It felt like an amazing place to be. And so when I was about to finish my, my position, they called me and said, you know what, there's this postdoc, which is very competitive, uh, but you could try it. You know, there's nothing wrong with trying. So I did try it um, and, I, and I got it. And it was a very, very competitive position. I think it was like 3,000 applicants for, I think, 10 or something like that. I, I still don't know what I got it, uh, probably because the, the, the center was um, uh, growing and, and it was, it was uh, gaining some attention and traction in the university. So I went to Melbourne. After Leeds, uh, I went to Melbourne. And I spent there, my position was three years. 
And in the second year, I just realized, you know what, I'm just getting too old for this. <laughs> you know, um, I was, I have always been so happy being the underdog and just like doing things that please me and, and make me feel curious and, and excited and happy. But I was like, you know what, I, I, I probably need to start like earning real money or like at least just getting into the workforce. And it was a time when <clears throat> uh, this position at the University of New South Wales, um, I saw it in one of the forums. So I, I decided to apply and I got it. And so I moved to, I, I didn't do my my last year in, in Melbourne and I went to, to Sydney. And Sydney was, a, on the one hand, it was a fantastic city. Um, I, I really, I lived very happily there, you know, 20 minutes my house, which had a little bit of ocean view. I, I was 20, 20 minutes walk for the to the to my office, 20 minutes walk to um to the beach. I had, you know, nice cafes, restaurants. I was, I was, it was really, really almost a perfect life. Except that with the pandemic, I realized I live in an island at the end of the world. And which is great. I'm enjoying this island. This this is the perfect place for me. Uh if I had money first, if I had a lot of money, it would be perfect place for everyone. Um, but also, I just realized something like the pandemic made me realize that you know we are in an island. The government shut up, uh, shut off uh, the the uh, the borders in a way. There were no flights. You couldn't get out of the country, and and I just realized you know this is a, also the time of my life in which I need to be closer to family friends and 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 also because I was coming back to be interested in Latin America as the site of my research um I did a, a small pilot study about WhatsApp living in Sydney and you know the logistics is always very difficult I got some invitations to go to Chile and to Argentina and sometimes I couldn't go because it was so expensive or it was so, you know, so long the trip. So anyway, I decided to apply for this job. Um, and again, I got it. So interestingly enough, I arrived to the US for the first time in my life as a tenure professor. And I know that that's, for some people, that's quite strange, particularly because I've had this life in which I've always prioritized the things that make me happy or the things that I find exciting and interesting rather than a career path. That's why I have like, you know, this uh, white uh, hair in, in, in me without having a four for one. Okay. And, and kind of like knowing what is happening here in the U S but I'm really excited for the challenge. And, and immediately the moment I arrive, I just found like my tribe and my people, uh, I'm, I'm good friends with Ivan Charlopez, which also was in, in, in this podcast. We have becoming really good friends and we are bringing this vortex of thinking and, and, and putting things together here in Austin. Um, I've been able to extend my collaborations and friendships and with, with, with my gang in Mexico and Costa Rica. So, you know, I'm, I'm really happy about that side of, of my decision. So, Edgar, you have had incredible geographic and cultural breadth of experiences 
at the professional level, right? I'm sure at the personal level, but that's not the, the topic of, of this conversation. So you've been in the classroom, and you've done research in Mexico, in Spain, in the UK, in Australia, in the US. If you were to put the US at the center and then compare with other academic cultures, and when I say academic cultures, I mean geographic, national cultures, national academic cultures. Um, what would you say are some of the distinctive features, um, some of the similarities, some of the differences with the other places you've been at? Pablo, you're, you're putting me in a really tough position. <laughs> Here because now I'm I'm employed here in the U.S. and and I'm really thankful for that. Okay, so I'm going to speak as a Mexican, and and Mexico has a strange relationship with the U.S. We at the same time see it as the horizon of many things, and we see it as also the the source of many of our problems in a way. A, a former president of Mexico used to say, "Poor Mexico." so far away from God and so close to the United States, right? Um, I think the U.S. has a lot of resources, which in other academic cultures you will never be able to see, let alone in Spain. You can, I'm pretty sure the audience knows what's happening in the U.K. at the moment. Uh, Australia has resources in part because they have been funded for so many years by uh, international students, mostly from China and India, in increasingly Indonesia. Um, while the US has uh, a system in general, at least, that allows them to have some funding from you know, endowments and um, uh, to obviously um, the, the money that students pay, to study the fees, student fees, uh, but also, I don't know, sports and many other things that in other parts of the world uh, are not existing. And I feel that people believe that because the US has a lot of resources, they are also the best possible uh, academic culture. I know number of people who have been educated in the U.S. and continue their work in the U.S. and they are remarkable uh, people, um, remarkable scholars. But I also think that sometimes people lose sight of how the world is too big and how the U.S. it's a very powerful um, academic culture, but there are also some other cultures have, that have different kinds of power. For example, I, I don't think I've found yet the seriousness and intellectual life that I found in England. I think England for, you know, it's, 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 it has a lot of problems, but the intellectual life that I've seen in England, um, I don't think I've, I've actually seen it uh, anywhere else. And, and again, it doesn't mean that there are no fantastic people and scholars. At the same time, I think, for example, the Australian Academy, it's, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity for many people in the world, but it's also very 
parochial in the sense of like they tend to, you know, nurture their own people first in this particular way, then with the PhD, then with this early career grant. And, you know, so you can have a, a, an amazing career in Australia if you were educated in Australia, but it's also difficult. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we can we can talk about we talk about this for hours, but but I also think that what I haven't been able to see anywhere else in the world besides the resources that the academic culture has in the U.S. Uh, are the the easiness for us to connect with people who are doing interesting stuff. So, you know, I don't have networks in the U.S. particularly because my life has been in different places. But I found so easy to connect with people and ask questions and let's let's go for a drink and what are you doing? Let's put this project together. Let's write a paper. So, and in that sense, I think the U.S. is fantastic. And finally, at least for now, my experience teaching in the U.S. has been amazing. I, I, I haven't had this experience teaching uh, nowhere in the world. The students here are really fantastic. They are so engaged. They are so invested. They are so curious. They are they they participate. They read. They ask. They question. Um, so yeah, I think I think you know pros and cons everywhere. Absolutely. So let me go deeper into one aspect that you alluded to briefly at the beginning and in a previous comment. You started saying it's a Mexican, right? Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your view of the place of Latin America and Latina, Latino, Latinx USA, right? in the field that studies media information communication which is actually a number of fields so in the intellectual space um from the vantage point of being having been born in mexico and living in texas texas is a particular place in the us it's a particular history and on purpose i say mexico and not mexico and texas mm -hmm. and texas mm -hmm. so so where and how do you see the place of Latinidad, right? In, conver in academic conversations uh, having to do with media information communication? Well, that's a, that's a fantastic question that I don't think I'm equipped to answer. But one of the things that I can say right away is that <clears throat> being, being a Mexican in England was a curiosity being in a Mexican in Australia was uh, a weird encounter, I guess. Being a Mexican in the US, it brings a lot of different dimensions. On the one hand, of course, you will, you know, we are the bad hombres and all of that thing. And, and many people actually truly believe that. Um, we have a, a, a tense history of, you know, migration, but also, of so many frictions between our two countries that I will not even start to begin to explore um, in this conversation. But the other thing that happens is that if you go to a supermarket here, if you go to the doctor, if you go to ask a question in a 
public place, you will always find someone who speaks Spanish. And that gives you, and, and life is not only academia, life is also an, a number of things that happens while you are doing academic work. It feels like, and I call it, and I hope nobody uses this against me, I call it Mexico of the North because there are so many things. But, but there's, there are two more dimensions that I found extremely exciting uh, that I never expected. The first one is that most of our first generation, first gen students are actually descendants from Latin, uh, uh, Latin American people, first or second generation. 75 of our first gen students, uh, 75 or four Latinx gradu graduates were first gen students. So for me, it has been a mind blowing experience to be able to talk to them, to talk to their parents and just realize how amazing the journey has been from the rural parts of Mexico and poverty all the way to being a graduate from one of the R1 institutions in the US and the fantastic work that this group of people are doing. So that's why I think some governments are, or some members of some governments are worried because they are seeing that, you know, the, 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 um, the population in the US is changing. Um, we are a majority minority state in Texas. The highest amount of, of black people lives in Texas. So, you know, I, I kind of get why they are becoming this uh, defensive. <clears throat> Diversity, equity, and inclusion is it's way more than just like separations. It's actually, as the, as the, as the word implies, it's, it's about inclusion. So just to, this is a long, uh, kind of like a, a long path to answer your question. And I think more than ever, the Latinx population in the US and the Latin American population in Latin America should have better and more conversations. And I understand historically the distinction between Latinx and you know, the Latinx studies, et cetera. And many of my colleagues uh, are experts on that field. But I think it is a time for us to start like having better and more conversations. My perception is that in many occasions, Latin American scholars who come to the US, they want to perform the USCDAT, to put it in some words. They, they want to play the, the, the game. In, in, in Spanish, we say, mas papistas que el papa. They, they want to perform in a way that erases certain aspects of what makes us unique, right? And I think. And I do get that you want to fit, you want to you want to be able to do your thing, but at the same time, I think we are strong enough for us to start having better and more conversations. And you know what you have been doing with your series and your podcast and your center is pretty much uh, 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 one possible answer to that, right? And I think that's that's why it's fantastic because we can first see each other. It's like you know what. <clears throat> I, I heard this podcast and the person who was there, their story is very similar to mine. You know, I, I feel connected to this person or I feel, you know, we are all, <clears throat> we're on this together. And so the second step is like, what's next, 
right? Like, how do we turn this into a book? How do we turn this into a collaboration, into a project? How do we turn this into a center? How, that's the next step. And so, yeah, so I think, I think there, we have a lot of opportunities and possibilities to, to be able to um, form that alliance or that uh, group or whatever you want to call it um, of Latinx and Latinos in, and Latinas uh, and Latin American people um, to start thinking about like, you know, what's next for us? What's, 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 what's coming for us? So then that's a perfect segue to my last question. If, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the, you know, the fields devoted to the study of communication, media, information to change, what would you wish for? It's, it's going to be probably a corny answer, but like, you know, I wish Latin American universities and centers have the money that the U.S. has. I wish they had the curiosity and connection to the world that some other academic cultures have. And I also would like for us to feel that we are true partners in this conversation. We are not subaltern. We are not like the Latinitos and Latinitas who attend um, conferences and are always in the corner. Like I always tell this story because it's very telling. Um, the first time that I uh, attended the Association of Internet Researchers in, in Vancouver in 2000, um, um, I don't remember now, 2012 maybe, and they put us, all the non-Western people, in a, in a session in which we had nothing to do with each other. And so I was there with my supervisor, a Catalan woman. There was two Czech Republic per, uh, people, one, um, I think, from Lebanon and ourselves. And we were discussing things completely unrelated. Um, actually, that's where I met Ignacio Silis because he was positioned also as the other, right? So if I had magical powers, I think what I would do is to provide both expertise, funding, and resources for us in Latin America to be equal partners with our counterparts in the global north. Excellent, Edgar. That's a great way to wrap up this conversation. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Thank you to our audience for staying with us uh, through the end. And I invite everybody to tune in for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again, Edgar. This was phenomenal. Thank you, Pablo. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.